0: Before we start today's show, I have a quick announcement. Our little podcast is doing a live recording on Zoom and Facebook Live on Friday, January 29th, and we're inviting you to attend. We're pretty psyched for this show. It's part of this year's Big Bold Jewish Climate Fest that's happening over Tubi Shvat and is sponsored by a whole bunch of Jewish organizations. The topic will be human composting. Yeah, you heard that right. With special guests Rabbi Seth Goldstein and Rabbi Adina Lewittis. Please feel free to join us for a lively conversation, followed by a QA where we'll take questions from you, our live audience. The best part: tickets are free, but you have to register for the festival to get the access link. So we've got the registration information right in our show notes. Click or tap on that link to sign up. Again, that's Human Composting. Friday, January 29th, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom and Facebook Live. We really hope to see you there. All right, tossing it to myself. Let's start the show. From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations.
1: I would love to reach a point where it is totally incoherent to be a politically conscious Jew who cares about Torah at all, who isn't in favor of reparations, because it's the core political principle of our own religious identity.
0: I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and our guest today is Rabbi Aryeh Bernstein. We'll be discussing his essay, The Torah Case for Reparations, A Jewish View. As a reminder, the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website. That's evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for this show, but we recommend checking them out. So for those of you who might be brand new to the podcast, what is Evolve? What is this website we're talking about? Well, Evolve is an initiative of reconstructing Judaism. That's the basis for our podcast. It promotes the ongoing evolution of the Jewish community by launching collective communal conversations about the urgent issues of our day. It brings together people to listen to one another's point of view and to interact respectfully. In this way, we hope to enhance the ongoing evolution of Jewish civilization. I know what you're thinking, that all sounds great, but what is it exactly? What are we talking about? So first and foremost, Evolve is a website, evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org, devoted to in-depth, thoughtful pieces. Right now, you can find entries under 14 different topics, everything from anti-Semitism to race, to climate justice, and so much more. If you're looking for ways Jewish perspectives might be relevant to your life and the issues of our day, you'll find it on these web pages. So far, we've based all our shows on an essay from the website. And there's more. There's Evolve Web Conversations. There were 10 last year and more on the way this year. There's also the Adult Education Program. We'll provide more information on our show notes, on our website but these are resources, curricula for having real conversations, either in person or online. Evolve is about meaningful conversations about the Jewish present and future, and these real-world interactions truly exemplify the mission. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome Rabbi Aryeh Bernstein. In his Evolve essay, The Torah Case for Reparations, A Jewish View, he explains how reparations play an essential role in the Passover story. He connects the reparations described in the Exodus to the idea of monetary compensation for African-Americans or descendants of American slavery. This idea has come up several times on past episodes, most explicitly on episode four, Slavery and its Atonement, the Jewish obligation to confront slavery's legacy with Rabbi Toba Spitzer. We're returning to the topic because we think it's important to consider and because Rabbi Bernstein makes an argument we haven't heard before, one that asserts the idea of reparations is central to the Jewish story. Okay, now I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Rabbi Arya Bernstein, Avodah's national educator. He's also a consultant for the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs and Farm Forward's Jewish Initiative for Animals. He's taught at Mishkan Chicago's Social Justice Beit Midrash and is now senior editor of JewSchool.com. In addition to speaking out on reparations, his 2018 Eli talk, The Rod and the Whip, Accountability for Law Enforcement, has generated conversation on police reform. All right, Rabbi Arya Bernstein, welcome, welcome to the show. It's uh, fantastic to have you here.
1: It's fantastic to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: Oh, my, my pleasure. I'm really excited about this topic, interested to, to delve into it. I just kind of want to start at the at the heart. So th- there's been a lot of discussions, certainly over the past five or six years, about the idea of reparations. There have been a lot of different Jewish arguments around this. And and you've you've kind of stepped in and said, Whoa, it's even more central to the Jewish story than you think. It's right there in the Torah, it's right there in the Exodus. So can you can you explain, you know, why why uh, reparations are central to the Exodus uh, Passover story?
1: Thank you. Yeah, you know, I had a similar. I was sort of a latecomer to the issue, of the cause. I read, like many other people did, I read Tanhazi Coates' magisterial essay in the Atlantic in 2014, the case for reparations. And as I read it, I just had a lot of clarity. I mean, he actually introduces it with a passage from Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, um, the laws about Uh, how to send away a, what's called a Hebrew slave. It's really more of an indentured servant at the end of servitude and making sure that they have startup wealth. And as I read his article and read that passage, I really began to see with a lot of clarity passages that I'd been reading my whole life. And I never really thought about in that context, specifically throughout the book of Exodus Shemot, and even earlier in Genesis and Breishit, when Egyptian slavery is introduced, and when it's narrated, um, the liberation is always tied to the requirement for the Israelites to take Egyptian property. At the burning bush, um, uh, God speaks to Moshe, to Moses, and says, here's the deal. You're going to go, I've heard the plight of my children in Egypt. You're going to go back down there, and you're going to help liberate them and at the end don't forget to ask of their neighbors you know gold and silver clothing property um to take out on the eve of the exodus after nine plagues right before the slaying of the firstborn in the 11th chapter of Shemot exodus uh god is telling moshe to speak to the people like just break down here's what's going to happen this is it last step and it says, and don't forget, God even pleads. Use the word not nah, Pleads with Moshe, don't people don't forget to take property from your neighbors, um, ask them for for their property. And then in the twelfth chapter, it's narrated they did it. And uh, this is understood in rabbinic tradition, um, most pointedly in a passage in the Talmud tractate Sanhedrin, as reparations, It's sloppy reparations, but The the validity of taking and the importance of taking Egyptian property was because they owed the Israelites money for hundreds of years of labor.
0: Sloppy because it's not a carefully worked out formula or a truth and reconciliation. Right, exactly,
1: right. But it doesn't seem like I mean, it doesn't seem like Pharaoh was really going to convene, you know, like a reparations committee with the like, you know, parliamentary inquiry commission, and so the message seems to be from the Torah and from the rabbinic tradition. Reparations are so central, so core, um, an element of liberation that even if you have to use somewhat pressuring or underhanded or sloppy, uh, imperfect methods to do it, you have to do it. God even pleads with the Israelites, don't forget to do this. I know you as if to say some of the commentaries go this direction. I know you. I know that you're just going to be like, I don't want to bother. Let's just go free. No, you have to for liberation to be real. There has to be, first of all, the financial terms to be able to remain free, and also there has to be, I think, the the um, the achievement of awareness of the justice of one's liberty that is achieved through reparations as well.
0: So you mentioned you mentioned the Talmud, and I think your piece also talks about the. And 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 tell me if I'm wrong that there is, that there is at least one mentioned that that maybe this is this is what led to the what led to the sin of the golden calf or where the where the gold came from so i guess
1: yeah, yeah i mean so the israelites had a lot of property really a lot of property coming out of egypt and you see history of that gold and other precious property in the life of the people so one is that um you know if, you, if you're ever reading the story of the golden calf and you wonder where they get all this gold from, that's where they got the gold from. And the Talmud in um, Masechet Brachot, Tractate Brachot, um, really works that out. And the fascinating thing is, even though the Israelites remain throughout all history to be terribly, terribly uh, you know, blamed and excoriated for the sin of the golden calf, that's considered you know, one of the low points in Jewish history. The Talmud and the people who participated in it are blamed. Their their death is justified, but God is attributed some of the responsibility. So, you're like, well, what do you, what do you expect them to do? Like, so we, there's an awareness that the property accrued from reparations sometimes leads to bad things. And yet, nowhere in the tradition, including the places that deal explicitly with that, does anyone in the rabbinic tradition ever consider, huh, wow, they did bad things with the property. I wonder if maybe they shouldn't have gotten it. I think the message that comes out of that is that the problem isn't reparations. The problem is money. People, and the problem is people. People sometimes do bad things, but the justice of reparations is not based on the pure righteousness of the people. Coates writes about that explicitly, especially when he reprinted the essay in his book, uh, uh, We Were Eight Years in Power. He writes about that and some of the very bizarre um, opposition claims. Um, and the other, the other piece of that is that, you know, if you want to point out the bad things they did, well, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was also built with the property that they brought out from from Egypt. And the Torah says in the 25th, I believe, chapter of Shemot, Exodus, God commands them to build a mishkan, a tabernacle, so that I can dwell within them, as if to say the possibility of God dwelling in the Jewish people was enabled by reparations. What would have happened had the people, maybe we understand why God was pleading with them, don't forget this step. What does it mean theologically? This is a much more speculative question, but what does it mean theologically to say that God's ability to dwell among us depends on our full achievement of liberation through taking, through receiving reparations?
0: So you're at heart a Jewish educator. Why do you, why do you think I've never heard this story in, or, or framed this way in Hebrew school or at the Passover Seder? And is that... Is that something you're trying to change?
1: Yeah, I've been asking myself that question as well, because like, it's not high. I mean, it's right there. In fact, it's funny you mentioned the Passover Seder. Um, we explicitly refer to this in one of the most popular poem songs you know, across the uh, Jewish ethnic spectrum, the Dayenu poem. Where we go through all these different component parts of the liberation, and say each one of them would have been sufficient reason for us to celebrate tonight and sing the songs of Hallel, these uh, the freedom songs. Each one of them would have been enough. Dayenu. All the more so when all these things happened. One of the steps there is, had God, um, you know, had God brought us out from Egypt, but not given us their money. V'lo natan lano et mamonam, Dayenu. And so this is a very popular song. People read it at their Haggadah. I subsequently realized just in the last couple of years, starting to look through some American Haggadot, it seems like the American religious tradition was maybe uncomfortable with that story. There is a long tradition, even back to medieval commentaries, as I discuss in my article, of the episode of the Israelites' asking the Egyptians for their stuff or borrowing their stuff, causing discomfort among some commentaries. Now, some of the medieval commentaries, they sound a little over the top. As the young people would say, they sound extra in their, um, in their assertion, their insistence that when the Israelites asked for Egyptian property, this was a full-fledged gift. It was all on the up and up. Everyone knew what was going on. There was no trickery. The reason they're nervous is because the word shaal in Hebrew can mean ask, request. It can also mean to borrow. It's a normal word for to borrow. And the Torah says explicitly, Vayunatslu et Mitraim, which means like they emptied out Egypt or they shook down Egypt. It might mean they exploited Egypt. That's what it means in modern Hebrew. So there is that anxiety about it. And then they'll come to try to justify well, we weren't going to get it as a um, some of them, like Rabbeinu Hananel, will say, like, well, it was, it was justified. But sometimes they're playing both sides. And I think, the, if I remember correctly, in my pre-2014 Jewish education, this was one of those places that a lot of polite, bourgeois liberal Jews were uncomfortable with. Yeah, we're grateful for the liberation from Egypt, but why do we have to trick people on the way? Why do we have to, like, Take all their stuff. Um, I my guess is that you know Jews earlier in American history, especially, were very nervous about being associated with money, being money grubbers. And I mean, you see how like how twisted internalized anti semitism can make people's thinking that like because we're worried about being depicted as money grubber financial exploiters, we're worried about, at the moment of being destitute slaves who have been exploited by the most powerful superpower in the world, and we're getting out, we're worried about repatriating some of what's owed to us in the first place. But the liberation is, from the very beginning, identified with liberation with reparations. It has always been central in our biblical rabbinic texts and in our liturgy, in the Haggadah. When we talk about the liberation from Egypt, we're talking about liberation with reparations. It's been right there.
0: Hi, if you're enjoying this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. If you're a new listener, welcome. Check out our back catalog of lots of groundbreaking conversations. Do you want others to experience this kind of dialogue? Please take a moment to give us a five star rating or leave a glowing review. Positive ratings really help other people find out about the show. All right, now back to Rabbi Arya Bernstein. So you first set out you you wrote um a much longer piece in medium, which um, your evolve essay is based. When you first set pen to paper or or fingers to keyboard, what were you what were you primarily hoping to accomplish? Are you hoping to change um, religious school curriculum? Are you hoping to get reparations actually higher on the Jewish organizational political agenda? What, what um, yeah. you know, what's, what's, what's the goal if, if your piece yeah. has the kind of impact that, that, that you aim for?
1: Thanks for asking. It's a good question. I think there, there are two
0: goals. One is the
1: actual political goal. I think American and really international um, politics and government should be grounded in the politics of reparations. It's not, I mean, I focused more on, the case of African descendants of Africa in the United States, but certainly indigenous peoples here, Haiti with France, you know, Argentina and many other, you know, countries who had been colonized by Spain, et cetera, et cetera. There are many reparations claims around the world um, grappling with colonialism. And here in this particular case, yeah. So I think, you know, there has been a bill submitted in the House of Representatives for like 35 years in a row, H.R. 40, which calls for creating a congressional commission to fully funded to study reparations and come up with a plan. So I think U.S. Congress should pass that into law. It's never even made it out of committee. It has gained strength since Coates' article. I think that should happen. In terms of the Jewish community, obviously the Jewish community is a small piece of the American population, but it's a piece that I'm in and everybody's got to do their part and do their lane. So I think I would like to see it become a central part of Jewish organizational consensus politics. I would love to reach a point where anytime some Jewish group goes to meet with an elected official who's half blowing us off and not really preparing for the meeting, or finding out what we care about. That and they want to just be blowhards and show how good they are to the Jewish people and Jewish interests, they immediately go into a thing, oh, yeah, yeah, I support reparations. The same way they'll now go into, like, talking about how pro-Israel they are, regardless of what the interests were. You know, Jewish groups get this all the time. They're coming about some domestic question, and the politician comes and talks to them about how how pro-Israel they are, like, we didn't ask. I would love for that to be the case, that the any governmental official assumes if the Jews are coming to me, it's about reparations. I've got to prove because everybody knows that that's the basic Jewish story. It is totally incoherent to be a politically conscious Jew who who cares about Torah at all, whoever does a Passover seder or a circumcision ritual or anything, who isn't in favor of reparations as a because it's it's the core it's the core political principle of our own religious identity. So
0: I would love And where, to, where, where to is it, it right now in terms of the, the Jewish agenda is it still considered um, you know not not mainstream and you know in the in the organizational so I, I think world? there's
1: a I think there's a long way to go. I do see a lot of movement. I mean even the fact, so in terms of like the reconstructing Judaism movement, the fact that you're having this podcast on this topic and you wanted to excerpt from the article that this is a topic that's coming on Um, moment magazine recently had a, uh, they have this feature where like representatives of different streams of Jewish life. Ask the
0: rabbi. Yeah. Right.
1: So they had like, you know, nine different, whatever rabbis and reparations was a recent topic. Um, The reform movement most boldly, as is often the case, the reform movement often, of leads the way on progressive politics things in a, on a muscular national scale. Um, to their credit, uh, the reform movement at their national URJ gathering uh, last year, I guess. Um, I don't remember the exact wording of it, but passed a resolution to center reparations in their in their movemental work. So I think that's, that's important. Um, Jewish renewal, I know the Rabbi Arthur Waskow has been talking about it. he also excerpted from my article recently and something so i think there is some movement in the burgeoning jewish left there is actually a bunch of different pods and circles around the country within SEDECLAB and independent groups and so who are forming reparations learning groups organizing groups et etc so i think we have a long way to go but i think that there is momentum that matches general national momentum of moving this from the fringe issue that it was considered as late as 2014 to something that is actually having some momentum and teeth, including with some municipal um, uh, municipal legislation in different places. Um, I think there's a long way to go. And I, I'm also interested in Jewish spiritual liberation. You know, going back to your question a few minutes ago, Brian, about why wasn't if this is so central, why do not I ever hear about it in Hebrew school? It's just something I've thought about a lot too. What have we suppressed? What have we been unwilling to come to terms with in terms of our own formative story? What have we been afraid of? What's, what's happening whenever the most obvious reading of something is unseen by an entire population? I think that Jewish liberation also depends on understanding more the profound goading messages of our Torah and rabbinic tradition in a deep way. And that what it's saying is that release from exploitation and slavery is not liberation. If there isn't a real accounting for the damage done over the time of the oppression
0: if if Jews are are going to make the the argument in the secular sphere that that um reparations and and this call for for justice is rooted in our torah and and you could argue American society has you know has on some level been shaped by 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 the torah and the 10 commandments does it matter whether this you know whether the exodus historically happened or is it or is it enough that that this is you know this is sacred to to Jews and 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 you know to Christians and we've been it's shaped our tradition for thousands of years or does it matter whether this was a historical event in which there's scant archaeological evidence for
1: yeah that's a really good question and i'm not sure i'm totally settled on it my instinct is to say no it doesn't matter and i think I think that's that might be disingenuous. I don't totally trust myself when I say that because I think if I really believe that it definitely did happen historically, then I think that might actually give even more oomph. Um, I don't want to settle that question. doesn't matter. What I will say is that even if it is not an historical record, and I don't primarily interact with the Torah as an historical document. And I think that a lot is lost by doing so. Um, I think it's still extremely profound to say that what we are as a people, we have shaped our identity at telling a story about having experienced exploitation and oppression and that the end of that exploitation and oppression is liberation through reparations. The Torah is insistent on interrupting the cycle of exploitation and oppression. The Torah is interested in basic equality being uh, being the law of the land. And so, if you're from the perspective that the stories of the Torah are not historical, then it's really striking to me that the Torah creates a background story of brutal slavery and oppression and draws a through line from that to regular economics, regular market economics. Poverty is a travesty. The Torah doesn't allow poverty to happen. Human societies allow poverty to happen and the Torah is outraged by that and interrupts it. And the Torah sees poverty as a systemic structural issue as descendant from and connected to chattel slavery. That's what the story of reparations is really telling us about, that there are implications legally, halachically, beyond just reparations. You want to say that you think reparations for former slaves is radical? The Torah is saying that's a stepping off point. That's not radical. That's basic. What's more radical is that we even apply the values and the logic and the legal apparatus of reparations to cases where there wasn't slavery in the first place. There was, but there was economic exploitation.
0: A very common response and and I'm no different, but I feel across the political spectrum when, when, when first hearing or thinking about reparations is, is to conceive of the practical reasons challenges why it might not work ranging from just figuring out who it would be eligible for to how you would get enough money to make it meaningful to i think now with with our fractured political environment you know how um you know underprivileged poor whites might react so why is it in in, i think in your view and also in coates's view not not the right approach to start with problems, questions slash objections and to, you know, and to get to the process of examining reparations and and what it could mean.
1: Well, I I obviously can't speak for ta Coates, but I can recall things he's written and I can speak for myself um, building on that. Um, Well, first of all, again, like when people jump to all the ways it couldn't work, Maybe it can't work. That's why we should pass HR 40 into law and see. Like you and I, as average citizens who try to be informed but aren't, don't have a staff, you know, budgeted by Congress to really do proper research and like bring in economists who have worked on this. We may be overwhelmed by seeing it as impossible. There's a lot that might seem impossible. Doing, you know, repar- doing repairs on my apartment might seem overwhelming to me because I don't know anything about construction. But if I brought in, if I like hired some people who actually know something about it, it might not seem overwhelming at all. Or it might. Sometimes you find out, yeah, you're gonna have to start from scratch. It's not, it's not worthwhile. Let's pass HR 40 into law. And that's what's so amazing about Coates's thing. People just like uh, people short circuit when the the upshot, the, like the halachic upshot, if you if you will, of Coates's article is pass HR forty, form a congressional committee. Let's see. Let's fund and budget fully researching this and what it. Could look like reparations have happened in different places in the world in different ways let's study different methods let's explore the questions from philosophical perspectives from uh, economic perspectives governmental perspectives etc
0: you talked about secular torah what's what's like the one-line principle you think that you know animating animating the idea of reparations is that is that
1: like when you steal stuff you have to give it back
0: that's that's it
1: yeah, I mean it is like that's the base it's 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 really like the notion that this is radical this is only radical if you just assume that bullies taking weaker people's stuff is the law of the land. The Torah doesn't seem to assume that. I don't assume that my kindergarten teachers didn't assume that and I don't think that uh it's there's any reason why it should be different on the international scale because since Europe stole a lot of stuff in the name of Christianity, therefore it's okay. Why do I feel committed to that? I'm not Christian and Christianity stole a lot of stuff from me too. Like why, why we would have to like make exceptions to say bullying and and theft is okay when it's, you know, France from Haiti or Spain from, South America, et cetera, et cetera. It's completely ludicrous. I mean, colonialism is completely ludicrous. Imperialism is ludicrous from a moral perspective. And we're just supposed to like, but saying that somehow makes you, makes you anti-patriotic or anti-American, fine. Well then anybody who says that, they're the ones then identifying America with theft. I didn't do that. By, identify, by calling for reparations, we're saying America doesn't have to be about theft. You can actually say, oh, this was an error that can be repaired, or at least partially repaired. But, anyway, but like the, all the people who are like, this isn't who we are, should be the people who are most eagerly pushing for reparations in the United States and internationally, everywhere.
0: Okay, another short time out here. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or even the curricula we're producing, you can engage in citizen philanthropy and support us. Every gift matters. There's a donate link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. All right, now back to Rabbi Arya Bernstein. There have been in, in U.S. history several, att- several attempts or examples of, of reparations on bigger and smaller scales. And one of which you, you grew up in, you grew up in Chicago, happened in Chicago with, um, with uh, regards to victims of, of police brutality. Can you, can you tell us that and how it might be connected? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think this is one of the examples of local reparations ordinances that have been passed in recent years, like since Coates' article, that Um, can, I think, give us hope that there will be local efforts and attempts that can create a national movement. Um, In Chicago, I mean, Chicago, police around the country and around the world are always, almost by definition, corrupt. Well, forget about definition. By fact, have been corrupt, racist, and, um, and violent. Certainly here in the United States, where their origin is in slave patrols, Um, So, and Chicago in particular has a very gruesome um, and brutal history of police brutality especially against black people and especially against poor people Um, one particular extreme manifestation of that was for many decades there was a police commander named John Burge who ran a unit that tortured people tortured poor black people um and framed people it was unbelievably corrupt and brutal even by chicago police standards finally um i forget exactly when some some years ago uh it finally came to light and there he was prosecuted and uh he john burge was prosecuted and then there was a long case of expunging the records of his victims that's still going on there are still victims of his who are in prison and most of them free. Um, In, I think it was 2016, if I remember correctly, the Chicago City Council passed a reparations ordinance um, that included significant uh, financial reparations to victims of John Burge's unit and their families. It also included requirements for there to be a public reckoning that uh, all Chicago public schools have to include units on the Burge torture episode in their curricula, I think in one elementary grade and one high school grade. Um, And there had to be the creation of a public exhibit. The central branch of the Chicago Public Library, the Harold Washington Library downtown, has a long-term exhibit there where you see the pictures and you hear and put on headphones and hear testimonies and interviews with victims of John Burge and learn about it. So there's both this kind of truth and reconciliation aspect and the financial payment aspect. I think that's a bare minimum. That's a starting point. Um, And that there should be much more of this happening everywhere. I mean, and honestly, just to help on ramp people into the concept of reparations, every time you know, every time somebody is like injured on a, on the job or anytime somebody is uh, victimized by police misconduct and the city or the state pays them a settlement, what do you think that is? That is reparations. So we actually have this in place in a lot of places. We've never taken it on for slavery. Originally, you know, there was the, the plan for, every released slave to receive 40 acres and a mule. And then the North just allowed the South to,
0: to get rid of that. And the North uh, uh, laid over. I think president Johnson, you know, yeah. Squashed all that.
1: Yeah. Because he was a, he was an opponent of Lincoln, even though he was his vice president.
0: So I wanted to close by asking, as we, as we look to the start of the, the Biden administration on your, on on your justice work, on your work on reparations, are you hopeful? What what are you um what are you looking forward in the next uh, next year, two years?
1: Well, I'm hopeful in the sense that harm reduction is really important. So you got like an explicitly white nationalist administration out of the White House, like um, that's a huge deal. And I, I voted for Biden. Obviously, um, I hope that's obvious. I don't support. Biden, I don't. I'm not optimistic about him, but Biden, for, for me, as a, a being in the movement for for human rights, for uh, environmental and human dignity and justice, Biden is an enemy that we can actually confront. Um, you know, somebody like Joe Biden actually is has to be somewhat responsive. He's dependent on us. You know, the the radical right thrives on our discontent. Biden's weakened by our discontent. So I'm optimistic that our movement can continue to operate. I fundamentally think that, you know, I don't have any reason to expect that the policies of the Biden administration on their own would be that much different from the Obama or Clinton administrations. I mean, Joe Biden was Bill Clinton's main uh, Foot in the Senate for the 1994 crime bill. So I'm not very optimistic about Biden. Um, however, he's accountable to us. And also, you know, he's not out to set up concentration camps for babies and that's a big deal. You
0: know, so do you draw, is there somewhere you draw optimism or, or hope from at this? The movement, this from the movement. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The movement. I think that a lot of, a lot of liberals start their political analysis with elected officials and don't know about movements. And I think a smart political analysis starts with people's movements, Mm. understands what people's movements are doing and finds elected officials who are accountable to them and learns how to, to flip them. You've seen the left, the world of community organizing has been really buoyed, not just in the last four years, but going back further, the left has been ascendant in ways that I think it hasn't been uh, since really, I mean, since the FBI assaulted it so heavily in the late sixties and seventies. Um, but, and you know, so I, so I, draw optimism from, from that. And I think that, you know, sometimes that translates into elected officials, you know, six, uh, there's six of the 50 members of the Chicago city council or members of the democratic socialists of America, know five of them came into office in our last election last year like that's a real shift of power um so i think things like that are happening on local on local levels i think you're seeing it in congress the group of of progressive democrats who are willing to say no to nancy pelosi's moderating influence and say like these are we 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 care about a Green New Deal and we don't think that that's radical, that's just basic um, as a starting point. That group is growing. And you know, the party has to deal with that, the country has to deal with that. And I think um, that gives me a lot of optimism. And my continuing ongoing relationship with studying Torah. Studying Torah and doing the mitzvot gives me optimism because not that optimism that things will be okay, but then they can be, there's wisdom in the world, there's justice in the world from from our Torah, through the prophets, Chazal, our Talmudic rabbis, and on to today, we have traditions in which we can um, resist tyrannical suppression of truth and and, uh, favoring of exploitation, we can resist that and actually um, uh, proliferate truth, understanding and justice. our Torah can continue to be a wellspring of, uh, of goading and inspiration to us as it is to me.
0: Rabbi Bernstein, thank you so much for your time. This was a fascinating, uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, we covered, covered a lot of ground.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, if people want to read the longer version of the article. Thanks for excerpting it on Evolve. Just search uh, the Torah case for reparations on Medium. Um, the, the Eli talk you mentioned look for Eli Talks on YouTube or in My Jewish Learning for um, uh, the Torah of Police Accountability I believe that video is called um, and follow the work You know, go to the, the Avodah YouTube page you'll see other videos and other uh, similar social justice Torah teaching
0: and we'll definitely provide links to all on the, on the show notes on the website so. fantastic Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Rabbi Aryeh Bernstein about his Evolve essay, The Torah Case for Reparations, A Jewish View. That essay was adapted from a longer medium essay, which we've also linked to, so be sure to check that out. So, what did you think of today's episode? We wanna hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversations, and that includes you. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, Whatever you have, you can reach me directly at my real email address, bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. And we'll be back next month with an all new episode. Evolve! Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wachs. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. The show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I'll see you next time.